College football took a seismic step in the right direction on Thursday. Some big news coming through by the NCAA, first reported by Yahoo Sports. What does this all mean in regards to UCLA football and the season starting on time? Well, we're about to tell you on this podcast. I'm Brian Fenley. You can follow me on Twitter. Yes, it is a good thing to do. I, I definitely would suggest you do so. Follow me there. Brian Fenley is my Twitter handle. Brian with a Y, F-E-N-L-E-Y. I'm also a national anchor for Fox Sports Radio. So the momentum is starting to build for college football in taking place on time in the fall. Who would have thought that, say, two months ago? This has been an ever-changing situation. I even recall back in April when we had a lot of media, sports media contingent out there that were pigeonholing the college football season to take place even into the spring of next year. I think we have completely moved away from that narrative, and not only are we going to have a season, but now the question is how many fans will be able to be in the stands. And these are different topics that I will address on this episode of the podcast. But the big news rushing through on a Thursday was the NCAA Football Oversight Committee passed a recommendation that coaches can begin starting July 13th, meet with their teams. Now, this is all predicated on happening by a vote that is going to take place June 17th. But according to Yahoo, this is simply minor procedural work. There is no need to caution. Like what I'm about to tell you as far as the protocols that have been put forth and announced, it's not like that they're going to dissipate and evaporate if this thing doesn't pass. Like it's going to be voted in. There's a 99.9% chance it will. It's basically to the equivalent of, say, it's a, it's the night before your wedding day and you're with your wife and you say to her, you still want to do this wedding thing? She's probably going to say yes. I mean, that's the rate in which we're talking here as far as this thing going through, 99.9%. So it's a kind of a complex plan here that has been tossed around and is about to be finalized by the NCAA as far as the breakdown on the schedule. But essentially, it's a six-week preseason. But there are days before the six weeks begin where you can actually take part in the official workout. So if you have a game, your first game is during Labor Day weekend. So I think that's like uh, September 5th. Then you are allowed to start getting on the field July 13th with a list of different rules. That is, from July 13th to July 23rd, you can only practice or take part in football-related activities for eight hours per week. So this is kind of like the slow, warming you up period, like, hey, you haven't been on the football field necessarily in an organized format in a while, so let's slowly indoctrinate you back into the swing of things. So it's going to be eight hours, as I said, per week, and they would have two hours of in-film or in-person film sessions that you could partake in, the other six hours devoted to strength and conditioning workouts. 
So that's what you can do until the 24th. Now, the 24th, you get a little bit more flexibility here. And now you're able to be with your team for 20 hours per week. So you go from eight hours to 20 hours. And during the 20 hours, there's a lot of different things that you can do. Walkthroughs, weight training, conditioning, and film study. And they're essentially calling this like the enhanced summer training. So... And, you know, there's, there is going to be some leeway as to how you choose to use the hours that you are given per week. So you could do, say, one scenario was eight hours of strength training and film review. Then you could use, say, an hour of walkthroughs. And then you could use another hour for, for team meetings. So it's up to the discretion, I think, more or less on the staffs on how they want to use it. But during these walkthroughs, you cannot have pads on or helmets but what I am hearing is that you can use a football so in the voluntary workouts that are going on and which started up when when the NCAA lifted the moratorium ban at the end of May so starting June 1st you could take part in voluntary workouts during those workouts I don't think you are allowed to have a football or at least you're forbidden to or urge not to because of coronavirus or, or whatever, any fears in, in that realm. But from July 24th to August 6th, those are the two extra weeks that are added on to the normal four-week training camp. When you get to August 7th, that's when the four-week training camp begins or essentially 29 days before your first game. So what that looks like, I'm going to tell you because there are added little measures that have been included in what you can and cannot do during that four-week lead-up in the training camp portion. But first, rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to auto excuse me, rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. The rockauto.com catalog, unique, remarkable, easy to navigate. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car and truck. And here is the call to action right locked on in there. How did you hear about us box? So they know we sent you amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. We will continue to shift it back into football mode and talk about the training camp and what that all is going to look like right after this. So up to the training camp we go. August 7th is when you can begin. That is if you have your first game week one, which I believe is penciled in for September 5th. For your training camp, essentially there's not really a limit on how many hours you can spend with your team per week. However, there are a couple caveats to that because you do have limited hours once you get into game week, 
the week leading up to your first game, or you start school, whichever one of those comes first. And you are seeing a trend of more schools pushing up the start of their school year because they don't want anything to do with the potential of having a second wave of COVID influence and infiltrate their school year. And again, these are just precautionary measures. We don't or we we don't know what will happen. Will there be a big outbreak? God, I hope not. And, and there might just not be. But that's basically what they're doing as far as just being as precautionary as possible. So some schools would then, uh, they would have a cap on the amount of hours that they could practice because their school starts earlier. And then when the schools that start later, then they have more leeway as far as hours that they can, can take part in during the the meat or the bulk of, of training camp. And so you wonder, well, maybe there's a competitive advantage there. But, you know, you, at some point, you can't totally, constantly overwork a kid. Like, I just don't see that happening. So I don't know how big... Uh, of an up, of of an advantage that that is going to be for schools that start later and and get more time, because to be real with you, you know you're trying to make it a, as level of a playing field as possible, but you can only be so uniform because you have schools that did not even get a chance to have one spring practice at all, and there were a couple of schools in the Pac-12 that did not get one. And I believe one of them was Washington State. So there are a lot of schools that are already at a disadvantage. So there's no way to make everybody see equal here. You're just going to have to live with that based upon the situation. I know we, as, as human beings, we love structure. We like to know when something is happening, when something is beginning, when something is ending. And what's so hard and what really just kind of tears at our psyche right now is that there's a whole lot of uncertainty. But I can tell you this, there was more certainty that there will be college football than there was back in April. And now the narrative is not necessarily that we're going to have a college football season, because I think we are. It's how many different people, or number of people, I should say, are you going to be able to fit into a stadium? Are you going to have some that are going to allow everybody to go in and, and pack it? Or are you going to have some states and cities that say, okay, we're going to put a cap and then if you put on a cap on the number of attendees, are you going to say, okay, like, how are we going to break it down here? Are we going to do people watching every other row and then every other seat in, in, in a section? Like, how exactly do you map all of that out? Those are interesting things that will be decided. I don't think right now we need to know about the amount of seats. There are going to be people that are not going to want to go yet because of the virus that's still going on. So you have to take that into precaution as well. But then you also have to take in the data because there are a lot of people, and I know I'm one of them, that was exposed to this virus and did not even know I was. I mean, our society knew about this or, or, or is now learning that, that this virus was running rampant throughout our country a lot earlier than the national media was first to report on like I'm 99% sure I got it in December and 
a lot of other people I've talked to have said, oh yeah, I had it in December. I thought it was a really bad flu. I had a bad fever. Or you know what? I think I got it in January. So there are a lot of people that honestly have already dealt with this. And so I wonder about that as being a sense of like a, a immunity and that could be positive. And what I want to talk about after this is an, an added bonus to the whole immunity conversation as far as the safety of players. But before I go down that direction, I want to welcome into you one of our friends that has been so supportive of the show and of the Locked On Podcast Network. And it is the work that our friends are doing at BuiltBar.com. See, Built Bar is, I, I mean, they have it figured out. They have streamlined the, the optimal health, tasty bar to eat, whether it's for a meal, whether it's for a snack. A lot of pretenders out there that like to think that they've got a healthy bar, but then you look at all the ingredients and you're like, what is that? What is that? See, at Built Bar, low carb, low sugar, high protein, great tasting, chocolate, peanut butter. It's, it's got the best of both worlds. And, and those are situations that you don't see very often. So here's what you got to do. Go to BuiltBar.com, type in the keyword locked on, and you get $10 off your first order. Yeah. BuiltBar.com, type in the keyword locked on, and you get $10 off your first order. We'll continue the conversation with what football will look like in the fall right after this. You know what really agitates me? I have seen on Twitter, now I follow a lot of people on Twitter, and maybe some of you listening to this podcast, I follow you. And I appreciate all of my supporters, and I appreciate all of you out there as well who, who give part of their day to listen to this podcast, and, and even all of the, the sports media folks that I follow a, as well. But they've gotten to a point, many of them, the, these blue check mark sports media elite, where it's inundated with coronavirus news. Now, I understand that that is one of the hotbed issues facing the world right now. But it's not that they're bringing it up. It's I'm inundated with it on my Twitter, Twitter feed. And I start to wonder, do these sports media elites, do they even want sports to happen? They are complaining, and I don't want to name names, but they are complaining relentlessly over coronavirus and and good news for sports and then they try to shut it down it's like do you eventually ever want to do your job like i i'm realistic i also lean on the side of optimism but the people that populate my twitter feed sometimes i wonder why are they always so negative why do you have to be like that it's like the person that you run into at the grocery store and you say, gosh, it's a beautiful day outside. And they find something to complain about and say, you know what, actually there was a cloud that I saw. Or whenever you have a sob story, they always try to one-up you and make it worse. It's like, that's not why we're friends. But 
that's the biggest problem I have right now. Like, I understand that there is a risk, but some demographics, some age groups are more at a risk than others. And I don't have a problem right now when I see some athletes test positive because you've seen this on the news. You've seen some college football players, as they get back to these voluntary workouts, the schools have their testing set up and they're they're coming positive in, in contact with COVID. But they don't even know they have it, right? So they're asymptomatic, a lot of them. I have no problem with this. And I think we shouldn't unless a situation, knock on wood, or gets serious. When it gets serious, that's when we need to worry. What I don't want to see happen, and I don't think this would happen, is that if a player come come summer, come the fall, contracts it, you have got to be so swift in taking action to make sure that it doesn't spread. Because I don't think you necessarily have to shut down the team or you know practice or a game if one person contracts it. I think that what you're seeing from pro sports leagues now, team sports, as they're trying to make their comeback, they are implementing protocols in place so that they can continue to operate their businesses even if one or two people come in contact with the said virus. In fact, I was reading some of the the NBA news out there in Orlando and how they're going to allow up to 17 players per team or something like that according to reports to, I would think, take into account for somebody that gets might come down with the virus. And then, and then if they do, how do you treat it? And do you look at it as an injury? And they have to be quarantined for seven days or 14 days. Some sports leagues are doing it just like that. And again, we shouldn't panic if somebody tests positive for this virus because these are college kids, and the data suggests that they're going to be okay. Now, if something bad happens, then we need to act. But until that happens, I'm looking at the data here, and we're seeing numbers of college athletes come down with it, and they've, they've been okay. They're recovering, knock on wood. So again, we need to be cautious. We need to be vigilant. But at the same time, don't overreact if you hear one or two that come down with it. This is the world we live in right now, right? I hope we can find a solution to, to this virus, but it, it's not necessarily, I don't think, going away anytime soon. So you have to live it, a life at some point. I mean, but that's for another debate, another discussion. So with the football coming up in the fall, you know, we're going to see every conference decide upon how they handle specific COVID cases and the protocols that they will put in place to help their team. So the Pac-12 has their own COVID Medical Advisory Council, and it's made up of a number of distinguished people who know what they're talking about as far as, you know, limiting or eliminating risk of coming in contact with the virus. And so what does that look like? Larry Scott, the, the Pac-12 commissioner, said the other day that, you know, he expects that 
Pac-12 athletes, football players, when they get back to campus, that they should be, you know, have the normal COVID test, but then also have an antibody test. Now, an antibody test would be interesting. And I know I've heard some reports that it's not always 100% accurate. I hope that with time, that the doctors and those that are putting those tests together with the antibodies, that they can get a little bit more diligent and efficient with those as we learn more about this virus. But if we do know that somebody has the antibodies, well, that's going to be something really relieving to think about. And that's going to be really um, something comforting because we know that more you know, often than not, those types of people might not have to deal with this in the near future again and, and coming in contact with COVID. Again, other situations might arise and, and, and it's not always that way where you have the antibodies and you're completely immune, but I think it builds up your case. And again, we're all dealing with risk here. There is risk in everything. There's risk in not playing. There's risk in playing. And you got to balance that because if you don't play, I'll tell you, it could be financial disaster time for a lot of schools. They have to at least try to play here. And you know that athletic departments, so much of their funds of other Olympic sports, all of that money, a lot of it comes through the football revenue. It's a business, ultimately, and it's a risk playing, but it's also a tremendous risk not to play. I have all the faith in these health officials that they will be able to do their best in proactively teaching these players how to handle this COVID environment we're dealing with as football gets closer to starting. But there's nothing that is totally proof or, or gonna, is, there's nothing that eliminates all risk. And that's just what we have to live with at this point. Appreciate every single one of you checking out this podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Brian Fenley. Have a great weekend. I will talk to you soon.